welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and once again, my co-host on the iChat, joining me, Jason Ziak. Jay, uh, what's your drink of choice this evening? Uh, nothing. This night has gone on so long, I'm completely dry. That's not good. You're going to become all, like, beclamped and my, stuff. My own spit. That's what my drink of the night is. Nice. Classic. <laughs> We've got a special guest joining us once again on another podcast to discuss another record that was totally awesome but has been forgotten. Mr. Keith Jenkins. Welcome back, Keith. Hey, guys. My drink of choice tonight is Stella Artois, but there's no Adrian Brody around singing an awful French jazz song to make women cry. You should consider yourself lucky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do. I'm much more excited about the music we're about to talk about. Excellent. And we're talking about a good one tonight because we've got Failure's Fantastic Planet, which uh, I might say this is probably in my top 20 albums of all time. Um, I've listened to this, had to have been, uh, you know, a thousand times. Dig this record so much. I'm sure Jay is going to just tear it apart or something. <laughs> I'm going to take Based a major on dump on it. You You're just gonna, wait. What were we going to say, Keith? Well, I was going to say, I might be the only one on this podcast who's actually met Kenny Andrews from Failure. So, oh, I was oh. going to mention how I, I think I, I went teenage girl on him and told him how much I loved Fantastic Plant, but this is when he was touring with Year of the Rabbit, and I don't think he really wanted to hear it. So. <laughs> nice. It was uh, not a good. Uh, I'm sure at this point I he'll think... he'll take any compliment he could get. Yeah. yeah, probably probably now he'd, he'd have a 20 minute conversation with me about it. But back then he was. Uh, he was all up. Just on a lot of pills, or he was all about the rabbit. Yeah, he was. He just he just didn't seem to care that he made one of the greatest albums of, of my entire life. Well, let's get into this record that has so uh, changed our musical landscape. For the people that don't know, Failure was formed in 1990. They signed to Slash Records, which was distributed by Warner Brothers in 92 and released Comfort, which was recorded with uh, Uber producer Steve Albini. They went on tour with Tool. The original drummer left halfway through the recording of the second album, Magnified, which was released in 94, and he was replaced by Kelly Scott. That album was produced actually by the band instead of Albini, and the band repeated uh, production duties on their 95, uh, started recording in 95, uh, Fantastic Planet, which is the album we're reviewing, and that finally came out in 1997, no, uh, 96. 96, after a protracted, um, they actually finished the record, but Warner was closing Slash Down, and didn't want to release any records on it, and the band actually negotiated to release their rat last record on Slash, and it was the last record that Slash actually released. Stuck on You got onto the Billboard mainstream chart at number 31, and the Modern Rock chart at 23. In 97, they contributed a cover of Depeche Mode's Enjoy the Silence to the Depeche Mode tribute album, which was put together by the band Outlets Underwater. And interesting enough, Andrew Fletcher from Depeche Mode said that he actually prefers the failure version to the Depeche Mode version of the song. I actually do, too. <laughs> and I do, too. 
Uh, uh, they toured. Three for three. Yeah. They um, joined the Lollapalooza tour in 97 and then broke up. In, in uh, 2004, uh, B-Sides, Demos, and Outtake album called Golden was released. And then in 2006, a best of called Essentials was released. But honestly, just the three records themselves are essential, especially this one. Who produced this I know one? They also released it on vinyl in 2010. Did they? Oh, yeah, that was really? Yeah. Um, now, if you go on, uh, if, you, if you YouTube Fantastic Planet, Fantastic Planet on YouTube, uh, there's a, like a four-minute documentary with interviews with uh, Ken Andrews and Greg Edwards and actually uh, Billy Howardell, who was, um, he didn't play on the record, but he toured with them, I think, for this tour, because uh, they kind of recorded as a three-piece with, with uh Kenny Andrews and Greg Edwards handling most of the guitars and bass. But when they went on tour, uh, Billy Howardell, who's probably better known now for A Perfect Circle, was uh, their touring guitar player. And I think Troy Van Lowen, um, who's now Queens of the Stone Age, uh, was also, uh, he, and in A Perfect Circle as well, he was somehow involved with them too, I think. I well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to include that YouTube video on our on the digmeoutpodcast.com website. Uh, when we post this episode, so people can check yeah. that out. It's, it's cool too because they talk about a lot about what was going on with the band and just when they made the record. And... Keith, you said that you had a little bit of information regarding um, the uh, recording of Fantastic Planet. I, I thought I was excited when I read this because I thought Jay would appreciate this. They they started recording it in a house that was owned by Lita Ford. <laughs> uh, from you know, eighties eighties yeah. fame, Lita Ford did the duet with Ozzy Osbourne. I don't know if people listening out B- there. Better known as the right. husband of the infamous Jim Gillette. <laughs> Singer of Nitro. Right. Or maybe not. Something like that. Wow. I thought she was married to the guy from Wasp. No, no, no. Jim Gillette from Nitro. Uh, don't don't, uh, don't question me on these things. <laughs> yeah, don't mess with Jay's knowledge on Obscure 80s. Metal. I'll call Chip Midnight. We'll get this settled real quick. I thought it was... I thought it was uh, the guy from Wasp who drinks all the vodka bottles in the swimming pool and declined Western Oh, she. Oh, uh, she may have Chris been. Holmes, Chris Holmes. She Chris may have been invited, uh, married to him previously, but I don't know. Yeah. He's he's a total fuck up. I don't know that he would marry him, but. Yeah, and Lita Ford also from The Runaways. Yes. Ah, yes. A movie about them recently, which was okay. It was not a great movie, at its <laughs> moments. But this is not a movie review podcast. This is an album. <laughs> we, did, we just ended up on a whole other tangent. So who who produced this? The band did. Okay. Ken Andrews actually engineered the entire album, which I thought was interesting to have somebody in the band actually engineer the record. Um, okay. So this is, is this officially the first thing he ever produced? Because I know he went on to do some other producing after this. Is this the first thing he ever produced? Well, no, because yeah. the, the, well, they did the Magnified album, too. Oh, uh, okay. Um, Albini did the first record, and then the band did the second two records, the second and the third record. Okay. The impression I got was that the, in the time it took between when they recorded it to when it actually got released, um, that's where Ken Andrews started to go out and produce other bands. Um, I think he hooked up with, like, Blinker of the Star around yep. around that time. And uh, I know he did the PDR record, the first PDR record in 2000, and I think part of the second one. Black Girl Motorcycle Club, a lot of other really good bands he, he produced. Also, in between the release of the second and third Failure album is the Replicants album, 
which oh, is right. an album of uh, covers that features guys from Tool and various uh, hard rock bands from the 90s covering songs from the Cars and as a bunch of a lot of like new wave and it's a pretty interesting record. It's probably hard to find because it I don't think it it wasn't on the radio or anything like that. It might have been on like a couple college radio stations, but it's uh, it's an interesting record if you can find it. Replicants is the name of the record. But let's get to this record. Yeah. Fantastic Planet. There's 17 Failure. tracks here, so we better get to it. 17 tracks. We can skip the Segway tracks. That cuts us down to only 14 tracks. Because the Segway are just music. Well, yeah. maybe I should go first here because. Go ahead. I'm gonna I'm gonna spoil the Love Fest a little bit. So this is a great record. I'm not going to question that. But I sort of have a, I struggle with it. And I've always struggled with it because it's so damn long. I mean, it is, it's 17 tracks and there's three segues. And when you get to track, I think the single was stuck on you, right? Mm -hmm. After the single, which is track 15. Okay, the big single is track 15. After that, there are two more six-minute songs. So this album is exhausting. The thing I love about it is that it's so unique in the way that his production is unlike any other production for rock. rock. It is so crisp, and everything is separated but still together. And, And the way he layers things in, it's very orchestrated. And for a hard rock record... You know, the way he kind of brings acoustic guitars in and takes them out and, and adds, uh, you know, kind of noise and pulls it out. It's it's kind of Trent Reznor-esque almost, but without a lot of the keyboard stuff. That um, orchestration and production style, if it was 10 songs or 12 songs, would be an all-time classic. Like, top 10 best albums ever. But over 17, <laughs> like... I have to force myself to pay attention, like to really stay focused and not start to wander. So it took me, I mean, this is an album that took me a long time to really absorb from start to finish. You know, you, I'd start playing it and I would sort of drift off and go on to something else and stop it and come back. And so, you know, it is, it's, I don't want to say it's challenging music. Because it's it's kind of not you know it's it's pretty direct and when you first get into it it's not hard to get into it's just it's hard to make it all the way through it I think for at least for me and to keep my focus on the whole record I mean that that's the only critique I could say is that it's it's basically some editing away from being you know absolutely perfect and now I guess you you could say if if you like what they sound like and what they're doing, then then there's no possible way you could say there's too much. But um, in terms of an album, it's, there's a lot there. <laughs> it's not it's not a, um, an unwarranted criticism. Uh, if this album was released in the 70s, or if it was released today, it would probably be shorter because you're dealing with the CD format. You're allowed to stuff 78 minutes of music on there. So it makes sense that it's longer. The fact that the single is track 15 is crazy. 
mean, and I just realized that this when I was listening to it again now, and I was sort of going through and just remembering everything, and that song came out, I was like, hey, wait a minute, they had a video for this on MTV, and I remember, I started picturing the video, and then it dawned on me, like, holy crap, this is track 15, <laughs> who puts their single track 15? Yeah, and the, the <laughs> kind of the funny thing about that is, that's not even my favorite song on the record, and I don't even think that that's the catchiest song on the record. There are, I mean, the first five songs are all just great. Oh, take take the segue, track three segue out there. But Sergeant Politeness, Smoking Umbrellas, Pillowhead, great, great rock songs, catchy choruses. Um, I think the thing that really caught me this time was the really interesting use of percussion oh, yeah. that goes on in a lot of the songs. Whether they're like little cymbals or um, something like music boxes at times. Interestingly produced record, and I know I know that that's, you know, Andrews sitting in a studio for a year figuring out how he can use all these little gadgets and whatnot that were probably laying around. So I'm really I'm interested um, to get your opinion on this, Keith, because a you're a guitar player and there's so many cool guitar things going on in this record. Yeah, I just I kind of want to get your opinion, and, and I, I know this was a I can I remember this being a big record back in the time when it came out, back in 96, and I was sort of late to the failure train. And I think this yeah. was a record that you gave to me to listen to. It was also with, like, Catherine Wheel's Happy Days, and um, I think uh, there was a Posies album that you gave me, I think Frosting on the Beater, when I had not listened to any of those ba bands, like, religiously. I'd maybe heard, like, one or two songs. Uh, but this was one of those bands that you gave to me and you know, listen to these while you're at work or something like that. So I'm interested to hear how, like, you came about them and then how it sort of played into, you know, guitar playing. It's kind of funny because I sort of missed this record when it first came out as well. It was my neighbors who happened in college. Um, Dan Gurkin from the band, now from the band Miranda Sound, um, which some people may know. Like, they loved this record. Like, they couldn't stop talking about it. And I remember going back, because, you know, we were all at the radio station at the time, and I said to Matt Shiverdecker, or otherwise known as Shiv, um, 
who was most recently at WXY fame. I'm name dropping a lot on this podcast, aren't I? Jeez. You are a name dropper. Well, it's just funny that all these people happen to be part of this whole process. And I said to Shiv, I was like, did we ever get this Fantastic Planet record? Because you know, I don't remember. He's like, yeah, it was in rotation for a couple, you know, for a little while. He's like, he hated it, apparently. <laughs> so um, it didn't last long at the station. So then I think I was able to grab a copy of it from there. And that's where I kind of fell in love with it. But to Jay's point, I can't, I probably can't admit that I ever, I don't know if I've ever sat down and listened to this record from start to finish in one sitting. I don't know who has that kind of time. But, <laughs> um, I mean, seriously, it's, but the songs that are in here are amazing. And they're, you know, like, like kind of like Tim said, it, it starts out like you go one through, God, you could probably go through the first eight songs and take those segues out, and it's pretty solid. And then you have The Nurse Who Loved Me, which is probably one of the best songs on the record, another space song. space song are awesome yeah it's like you have three tracks 13 14 and 15 like jay said i always i, I remember there was a time where i think i forgot that stuck on you was on this record because i never really would make it that far yeah it's like you throw the cd in your disc man when you're walking to class and you know i'd be lucky to get through segway one by the time i made it to uh west hall or whatever so <laughs> your disc man <laughs> I'm dating myself, right? uh, hopefully we have uh, listeners that are young enough to be like, "What the hell's a disc man?" Well, I guess we're talking about a record or a CD from 1990. Yeah, so yeah. Kind of, I just hadn't heard uh, the term "disc yeah. man" in a while. Yeah, and I know it's funny because a perfect circle with you know Maynard and everybody they covered "The Nurse Who Loved Me." It was kind of a lame cover of it, but it was interesting that that band only put out two albums. And one of the tracks that they put on the second record was a cover of The Nurse Who Loved Me. Well, l- let me ask you guys something about this record. Is this a concept album? Have they ever talked about that? Or I've never read anything that it is, although it's, it seems to be implied through songs like uh, another space song and Heliotropic. Yeah. The chapter, yeah, they list the songs as chapters, and then they kind of have the whole... I, I think that was sort of a... You know, maybe they did, but and the segways, right? It it seems more like a post idea than let's go in and let's make a because I don't know what the concept is if it is if there is a concept. I think there were a lot of drugs involved in the making of this record. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> so there might have been some, but, but yeah, I, I guess. And I totally glossed over the fact that you asked me specifically about the guitars, and I did want to mention. Um, the one thing I, I kind of picked up on today and recently when I've been revisiting this one is they use a lot of acoustic guitars in very, very heavy rock songs. Mm-hmm. Um, like even Sergeant, uh, Sergeant Politeness, which is like one of the biggest riffs and probably one of the more up-tempo songs on the record, 
it starts off with kind of like a dissonant acoustic, you know, version of the riff before like the whole band comes in and it just sounds like a wall of sound. He always throws that one dissonant note in the pattern where you're like, where did that come from? But it totally yeah. makes it. Yep. And he just puts that, that Mesa rectifier with a little bit of chorus or delay on it that he does, and it just has that sound. You mentioned the acoustic guitar in the rock song Pillowhead has. Yeah. Great acoustic guitar. I was just going to say that. And that is by far the fastest song on the album.
goes yeah, in the I, verse to acoustic guitar. <laughs> yeah, I think there's. I bet if you listen to this record closely, I bet there's acoustic guitar somewhere in almost every song. Yeah. I mean, they, they definitely layer the guitars. I'm I'm not as familiar with the the two earlier records, but one of the songs that kind of for me stands out like a sore thumb on this that I'm wondering if it's it harkens back to their earlier stuff is the song Leo. Can you guys think of that song in your head? It sounds very yeah, Nirvana-ish to me. Yep. And it doesn't really fit on the album at all. I mean, is that what their earlier stuff sounds like? Yeah. The, I have um, comfort. I actually never found... I could never find a copy of Magnified, which is funny. It's on iTunes. Um, is it on there? Yeah, I, I never went back and downloaded it, I think. But um, Comfort is very raw. Mm-hmm. And it, it sounds like, you know, if Nirvana had had, I think vocally it sounds more like Nirvana than Fantastic Planet. And I think Magnified is a lot closer to Fantastic Planet sonically. Yeah, Magnified, it w- Leo would fit on Magnified. I mean, there are, even Stuck on You would fit on Magnified. There are songs that have that sort of uh, uh, guitar tone and... Um, yeah, Comfort is definitely a more raw record. It's, yeah, it's not, as, not as produced and not as shiny as this one. And Leo Comfort just has a boring. lot of distorted bass, from what I remember. This has some moments of distorted bass too, but uh, Leo just struck me because it's it's so much simpler than the other songs. I mean, it's basically just a, you know a couple guitar riffs. There's not the orchestration doesn't happen like where you know he kind of brings things up and down. And one of the things yeah. I love about this record is. The drummer, I mean, not only is he a great drummer, but he's a great drummer in sort of, he does these dramatic pauses and these really cool fills that fit precisely in these really cool spots. Like, he knows, he's really tasteful. He knows how to, like, use silence and as much as he does, you know, hitting the snare drum every thousand beats like the guy from Sons of Elvis. (laughs) He actually knows when not to play, which is sometimes the coolest part, coolest thing that a drummer can do. You know, is know when to stop and when to come back, and he knows that really well. I'm not sure if that's part of the production, if that's Andrews sort of telling him what to do, or if that's just the way he is. But that's one of the things I enjoy, especially now listening to the record, is just uh, how much of a role he plays in the dynamics of the songs and how you can really hear that on the first song, Saturday Savior. Yeah, he's constantly like. Uh, bringing in these big rolls, mm-hmm. and there's a slowdown at the end of the song. He's really emphasizing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's he, his drumming sort of makes what makes that song cool. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, another space song has the awesome, just a drum beat to that song. Yep. It's, Here's one thing, you know, and I never thought I would say this about any band because I, I love, you know, seeing bands live, but I never saw failure live I, I did see Ken Andrews do the Year of the Rabbit thing and I, uh, I I think he put out a live record where he has another band back him up that he produced but um, I, I don't know from some of the clips I've seen on YouTube and I know it's you know video from the 90s and the audio quality probably isn't the greatest but I, I still like I wonder if they really pulled this off very well live I was I was gonna ask that yeah like I don't know if you guys get much you know, listener feedback, but I'm curious if, if there are people out there that have heard this, you know, are familiar with this band that saw them back in the day. Um, you know, because I would, 
find it hard to believe that they were able to pull this off live. Yeah, I would I, imagine even, if they, they couldn't do it as a three or, or whatever they were, a four-piece, you'd have to have, you know, uh, at least an extra guitar player because there's so much layering of the guitars going on. And then you'd probably have to have somebody just work in a computer for all, like, the samples that they're using with the various percussion samples. And maybe, and, and maybe they did, and, I, and they, maybe, they, you know, they were amazing live, but... You know, the clips that I saw didn't really indicate that they were really pulling it off. I mean, I think they were also, from what I read, I guess, or, or in the, they actually talked about it in the documentary about the re-releasing the record, was that they weren't getting along very well when they recorded this record. So I think they knew it was going to be the end, probably before they ever even went out on tour. But because, you know, Warner Brothers, you know, got it out for them, I think they probably felt obligated. So who knows what kind of state of mind they were in when they were on tour, but... Um, yeah, I just was, you know, I'm curious to know if people who saw him back then, if they were really as good as this record is. Pretty obvious that Ken Andrews wanted to move on from the sound. I mean, they covered Enjoy the Silence, and then his next record is a keyboard based right. on his two, what are essentially solo albums, are really heavily influenced by Depeche Mode. So I wonder if he was just sort of, he felt like he had done all he could do with sort of the big rock band and wanted to try something more uh, studio-based. Well, I think you get the sense, listening to this record now, that, you know, it was... It, it, you know, I don't even... When I listen to it, I'm like, you know, when they put these songs together, they probably never even intended or worried about playing them live. So I kept thinking about, wow, do they tour for this? Because it must have been very different. You know, what they did with these songs live must have been very different than what was on the record because there's just so much going on. I mean, just the switching back between acoustic and electric, like he couldn't have possibly done that. So how does a song, how does all that layering and dynamics happen if you can't do that? Because it's such a crucial part of, you know, the, the dynamics of the song. So You get an electric acoustic uh, double neck. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no. Oh, that doesn't work out so good. <laughs> but I mean, I think they committed. It, when I listen to it, it sounds like they committed to, you know, what we're just going to record this, and we don't care if, you know, we can pull it off live or not. We're just going to make the best possible record we can, and and just go with that. Yeah, I'm also. I, I love the feeling that you're going to find out, probably for a lot of the bands that are out now, or a lot of the rock bands that have kind of been popping up in the last five years or so. I bet you're going to find that this was a huge influence record. Like, you're, this is going to be one of those bands. Um, you know, you hear guys that are kind of pop, you know, out now saying, yeah, you know, like Fantastic Planet was an influential record. I, I think you're going to hear that. So, I mean, at the, at the time that this came out, I was trying to remember, I mean, were they part of any particular kind of movement or scene? I'm trying to think of any other bands that were, I mean, I was coming up with like Shiner maybe or. No, they I were friends know. with the guys in Tool. Okay, yeah, I mean, you can hear some Tool stuff. Is that the closest the, closest thing that was, uh, you know, in terms of a band that sounded like them for that time? It seems to me the only other thing that I thought was close is if, from a production standpoint, they were definitely different. But from a musical songwriting standpoint, they were closer to, I think, some of the maybe the hardcore stuff that was going on in D.C., like maybe Jawbox. Right. Um, yeah, that makes sense. You know, I mean, obviously, production-wise, it's two different ends of the spectrum, but vocally... From a songwriting standpoint, and what they did with guitars, I think you know those two bands probably could have toured around. That. I think Jawbox had a major label album out in '97, uh, if I'm not mistaken. That's when uh, 
they did an album on Atlantic. So interesting that both the frontmen for those uh, bands went on to become producers. Yeah, and which again comes back to I think you know sphere of influence. You know you're going to see you're going to hear a lot of people probably say that these bands like Failure or Jawbox were were probably influential. And, and and the thing about this album that that really makes it good for the show is that once again it was issued on a label that no longer exists. <laughs> that seems to be Which a theme. Yeah, and it was a it was a big one too. Yeah, yeah. Slash put out a lot of stuff. Does anybody know if is Ken Andrews doing anything now? I mean, I haven't even heard if he's produced anything lately. I checked his website. Uh, it's there's been no updates since he put out that solo record a couple years ago. It looks like he's just producing and you know working on other band st- stuff. I don't. There was nothing about him putting out any new music or reuniting any bands or anything i'd like to see them get some sort of ken andrews super tour with how, you know he, they could play you're the rabbit and on and how is it how is he not scoring movies actually he did do a soundtrack song uh for like a one of those animated movies like seriously i mean if trent reznor can now have a career scoring movies like he well, should he be worked on the tenacious d record oh okay oh he did yeah he was a producer on the tenacious d record but I mean, like, not just like writing a soundtrack. I mean, actually, like sitting down and like you know scoring it, like you know really, like you know Trent Reznor did with Social Network, where it's like you know sound yeah, beds and yeah. emphasizing the scenes and playing off of it. And I mean, because that's in a lot of ways to me, that's why I asked if this is a concept record because it has that sort of, even though they're you know pop rock songs or whatever alt rock songs, there's still there's an element of that to it. Um, yeah, which that's I feel a like point. I feel like I'm watching a movie yeah, or something. Art, if you look at the artwork, it's definitely like one of those, you know, serial or comic book like space themes from like the 50s or 60s of mm-hmm. what you know the future was supposed to look like. Mm-hmm. I'd like to officially yeah. extend a um, an invitation for Ken Andrews to score the um, dystopic uh, sci-fi movie that I'm working on. <laughs> yeah. He can use he can use tracks from this album, or if he wants to write new ones, uh, I would I would be happy to uh, accept those. Like I kind of view him now as the more uh, the more the, like the hard rock John Bryan. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I, I like, kind of see like a same sensibility. I, uh, they just sort of use different instruments. I'm gonna wrap this up. Uh, please visit the Dig Me Out website, digmeoutpodcast.com. You can find the aforementioned video of failure that we discussed about three hours ago. Uh, we'll have a link to their Amazon page. Please click that if you're interested in purchasing purchasing the record so that we can get uh, a penny for that referral, which will help us pay down our massive debt for uh, putting this podcast on. If you'd like to donate money to the podcast, just uh, let us know, and we'll happily accept your checks or cash. And I want to thank Jay. Jay, uh, one last word to describe this record. One word. Oh, exhausting. <laughs> Wait, you, the record or this podcast? Well, I guess it's both. I'll say uh, uh, epic. Epic. There you go. That's a good uh, one. You stole my word. Uh. Keith, thanks for joining us again. One word to describe Failure's Fantastic Planet. Fantastic. That's, that's, wow. Clever. Nice. Clever son and, of a bitch. Yeah, for, thanks for having me again. I, I enjoyed it. Oh, we were, we're happy to have you. My word would be 
I don't know. I don't have a word. You guys took the good, two good words. Fail. Yeah. No, not that. Oh, no. Win. Um, Winner. Winning. Winning. There we go. Everybody, thanks for listening once again to Dig Me Out. Visit the website. Go to our Twitter page. Visit the Facebook page. Do all that kinds of stuff. And uh, we'll see you next time. Or we'll talk to you next time on Dig Me Out. Say hello to the rod's topography. It holds quite a lot of interest with your face down on it. Visit digmeoutpodcast.com for links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed. To the